If we asked you for your definition of success, what would you say? For us, it's simple. Success is unique to each and every one of us. Welcome to The Success Revolution, the podcast that's changing the way we talk and think about success. We're The Step Up Club. I'm Alice. And I'm Fenella. And we're on a mission to get every single one of you feeling successful, no matter what that success looks like to you. As you might know, we are the creators of the Step Up School, and today we've got some really exciting news for you. Our next round of Step Up School Inner Circle, that's our game-changing three-month course, is now open for enrolment, and we've created a special discount for you, our podcast listeners. Head to stepupclub.co forward slash podcast discount for all the details, or find the link in the show notes. In today's episode, we speak to gender equality campaigner and city legend Helena Morrissey who talks about being a woman in a man's world, the reality of having nine children, how success and failure for her are closely intertwined, her brilliant and exclusive advice on how to reach the top of your industry, and the mistake that nearly cost her her career. Alice, I really love talking to Helena, and I know you did too. What did you think about how she was defining success? I just thought everything about her is slightly unexpected. So I think on paper, if you read about her achievements, about having nine children, about the fact that she's a woman in a man's world, I think you would have an image of a type of person that she is. And I think she kind of busts that cliche by being really wise and humble and kind and not brash in any way, shape or form. And even the fact that she's got nine children seems quite normal when you talk to her about it. She kind of normalizes everything and makes her life seem if not achievable, because it's not everyone's dream, it feels right for her. And I think that was something that I took away from the discussion. What about you? I find her very feminine. Yeah. Very authentic, very quietly spoken. You'll see when you listen to the interview, she's very softly spoken and unassuming. And that's so contrary to the assumptions that we make about leadership. And yet she is this massive leader in the city, in her industry, in investment management. She is one of the most successful women in the world. She's also actually one of the most successful investors in the entire world. And she's created change around gender equality, again, globally. She is one of the founding members of the 30% Club. She's very much the driver and she's driven all kinds of countries in all different continents to achieve this goal of gender equality across many, many different industries. So it's really, really interesting to me that someone small and feminine and quiet can be this incredible, world-changing leader. And I think it's really exciting for women like us. And I think hopefully for you guys listening, we are authentic, we are feminine. At one point she says, you know, it's not all about being a ball breaker. And it's really empowering and exciting to think that you can achieve such a great career and so much change by being exactly who you are. I also think it's really interesting because you assume that she must be really egocentric and only driven by her own goals. And while I think she is driven by her own goals, they're very quiet and so it's not offensive. She says in her book and she says in the discussion that really she's driven by the change that you've mentioned. And I think that's like the final piece in the puzzle. It makes everything else understandable and relatable even in a way that you can be this woman in a world that you wouldn't necessarily put her in and make such big change but also be just a lovely person to have a conversation with. 
I completely agree with you. I mean, what's amazing is she makes even the fact that she has nine children seem completely normal. And let's be honest, we were pretty fascinated by that exactly. as women who have children and definitely would not be coping with nine. Okay. So I think everything about this interview is interesting and inspiring and really deeply honest. And she gives some great advice for whether you've got your own business or whether you're an employee too. So that's kind of exclusive advice that we can get direct from Helena for you. Yep, so enjoy the interview. Today's episode is recorded in support of Mothers to Mothers, a charity very close to both our hearts that works with their mental mothers to eliminate mother to child HIV transmission in sub-Saharan Africa. You can find out more about how to help at www.m2m.org. All the info is in the show notes. So before we go to the interview with Helena, which we're really excited for you to hear, we just want to do a little plug for ourselves, and that is around Step Up School, which is one of our favourite parts of our business and what we're probably most proud of, isn't it, Fan? Step Up School is, well, we think it's really amazing. Yeah. It is a course that has already helped hundreds of women to get the career or business and success that they want and that we think they deserve. So if you would like to be on our next course, they launch in January, both in person, that's our Inner Circle course in central London, and online, then click across to stepupclub.co to find out more. And we actually have a special podcast discount for you, our listeners, and that will be in the show notes too. So get across quickly because spaces are filling up. It really is a game-changing course. We've had so many incredible testimonials. We get constant feedback from all of our alumni who are now basically all of our friends and in our extended network. We know that they support each other all via Step Up School and we really want you to feel the benefits too. Helena Morrissey is one of the best known women in finance today. Now head of investing at Legal in General, she's done much more than ascend the corporate ladder. In 2010, she co-founded the pioneering 30% Club with the aim of achieving better gender balance on company boards. Thanks to the 30% Club and Helena's own efforts, the proportion of female directors at UK-listed companies has actually gone past the 30% mark for the first time ever, and her approach has been adopted all around the world. As if that wasn't enough, Helena has also been named as one of Fortune magazine's world's 50 greatest leaders. She's twice been voted as one of Bloomberg's 50 most influential people in finance globally. She's a fellow of London Business School and was awarded an honorary doctorate by Cambridge University in 2016. Last year, Helena was made a dame in the Queen's Birthday Honours List, absolutely amazing, for her contribution to diversity. She's also, I haven't finished yet, the mother of nine children whose ages range from nine to 26. She recently became a grandma. And earlier this year, she published her brilliant new book, A Good Time to Be a Girl, which Alice and I both absolutely loved. She also happens to be a kind and gracious human being. We recently sat next to her at an exciting legal and general launch event, and she owns the kind of wardrobe that dreams are made of. Helena, welcome. Oh, I feel a bit daunted by that account of myself. I hope I don't disappoint now. But No, you definitely <laughs> you. will not. So the whole premise of the podcast, The Success Revolution, is about opening up and hopefully diversifying what success means these days. On paper, it seems like you've strived towards the traditional definition of success, money, power, a big job title. But in your book, which, as we said, we absolutely loved, you talk about your success definition as being really quite different to that. Can you tell us a bit about your definition of success and how that's evolved over time? Yes, of course. I certainly think when I was starting out and, you know, was not really having a very clear sense of my own ambition. It was easy just to fall in line with, you know, okay, but this age, I was, in fact, I was told my first 
week at my first job, oh, you should aspire to be a director by the time you're 32. I mean, they were that precise. <laughs> you know, I took everything on board. I was a very conscientious young lady and I thought, okay, that's what I should do. But of course, life is very different than perhaps you envisage when you're very young. And I had my first child when I was 25. And when I came back from maternity leave and I was passed over for the very first promotion, which is supposed to be no big deal, actually, it was the first rung on the ladder. And it made me think a lot about gender because I wasn't expecting my gender to have anything to do with how far I could go in my career. I thought it would just be down to hard work and aptitude. But I was actually told it was down to my commitment with a baby than any problem with my performance. So that made me think again about what's important to me in life. And then, of course, I realized that Actually, the more you learn about the business world, well, it's great to have the influence. It's great to have the power to change things. In fact, that really does motivate me significantly. Just sort of being part of, you know, the status quo soon lost any kind of major attraction. I've always enjoyed the roles where actually I've been able to combine profit and purpose. So the definition of success quite quickly changed for me, you know, about being more to do with your family, more to do with your lasting legacy, more to do with actually are you going to leave the place better than when you joined it? And using, yes, it's been important to have some sort of formal authority, as it were, that comes with a job title, be able to change things. But a lot of people have that and they don't do much with it. You mentioned your children. Mm. We can't, as two mm. mothers of not that many children, avoid asking you about, we're just fascinated by you having nine children. You did, when we had our dinner, trip me through how you ended up having nine, which I can't remember exactly the details of. But thinking in terms of your career, was having a big family always part of your definition of success? And mm. how has having lots of children and having this big dynamic family impacted on your career, your definition of success, what you've wanted from life? Well, certainly my husband and I, when we first got married, and neither of us are from big families, but we sort of compared notes, as I think couples often do at the sort of start of married life. And we thought it would be lovely to have a big family. We both had this image in our minds of sort of happy chaos. But we had aspired to five. I think a lot of people I know from also talking to friends that they say that when they first get married and then when they don't know and then most people sort of change their tune a little bit after having one or two and so we hadn't intended to have quite such a big family but obviously very grateful wouldn't have it any other way than we do obviously it didn't happen overnight I don't have any twins or triplets and we actually started off quite slowly and I think went through lots of the struggles that everybody has children and tries to work at the same time so that does make me very conscious of it's not like I've always kind of you know had a big job and had the money that goes with that and so forth but know full well that it can be very very difficult just logistically and still is logistically challenging with nine children it always is in all honesty, I've learned so much, perhaps I shouldn't admit to that, but from, you know, large family teaches you a lot about how human beings relate to each other. And one of the things that is difficult to explain to people who don't have quite so many sometimes is that they form their own network. And actually, I mean, even if I was at home, there wouldn't be enough parents to go around. We would definitely be outnumbered. And it's wonderful to see actually how, and obviously they're normal children, they'll have scraps and some arguments, but in the right environment, they will help each other. And I can see, we recently hosted my eldest daughter's wedding and actually it was very little notice to put it on. And we ended up, I mean, it was very much a family affair in terms of everybody's even vague talents in any particular area were sort of commandeered. So people were sewing, they were sticking, they were gluing, they were singing, they were dancing, you know, the whole thing got all roped in. And actually people said afterwards, wow, that was such fun that we all pulled together and made a special day. 
So it's definitely been an evolutionary thing for me and it's a big part of my identity, to be honest. I mean, sometimes people ask, do you mind talking about it? And of course I don't, because if it could in some way encourage man or woman, but perhaps particularly women to think, yes, it is not just possible, but you could emerge sort of really enjoying life by doing things slightly differently. Do you think you've learned, and I don't mean this in a very base level, but has it helped you to manage your teams? Because presumably mm. having nine children is a bit like having a massive team. So yeah. think, we often say that women, when they have children, come back and feel like lesser people when they arrive in the workplace but actually you've learned all these home skills mm. not home skills in a patronizing way but just kind of time management different perspectives leadership yeah, leadership. yeah prioritization exactly so do you think yeah that's been- i do i mean i'm obviously always wary of talking about too much because obviously there are many people who either can't have or don't want to have children you don't want to imply that the only way to be able to no, manage lots of people is to story, have children though. but it is my story and personally in fact i have spoken and been criticized for not emphasizing enough how much you can learn from the experience of being a parent and certainly but I was asked the other day do I learn more from the team to manage the family or the family to manage the team and actually I had to confess it was the family to manage the team partly because of course you don't have any contracts you know within a family you kind of have to make sticky situations work you have to resolve you can't fire anybody. things you can't fire anybody you can't sort of move on the rest of your you life you have to kind of make yes exactly i mean the other day they were talking about pecking order in the family in terms of they said well mum's boss at work but she's not the boss at home kind of thing and then they had a kind of order of i was pretty lowly that's quite in that nice though range yes um, yourself yeah so but it was funny because some of the younger children were right up top in terms of who's really you know the boss of the rest of them but yes it's a very interesting dynamic and again i think Sometimes the discussion that we often have about work-life balance, you know, the implication being it's all very separate, Mm. I think undermines the opportunity to acknowledge the learnings because it's actually all part of life, isn't it? It's not one's work and one's life. It's actually all life. And I would like us to move to a stage where we're thinking less, I think we are, but perhaps not quickly, less binary about this is what I do for work and this is what I do at home. And obviously technology is helping us it can be difficult to switch off but it does mean that lots of people are moving in and out of work and domesticity of one sort or another I think it's interesting what you said right at the beginning about how when you were started off in your career you didn't assume that your gender would be a factor in any type of progression and yet in your book one of the quotes that we loved which really touches on gender was that you said we need a broader definition of power a new feminine brand of power rather than just fitting in awkwardly with the masculine concept which Mm. really resonated with us and everything that we try to do from our perspective now you really embody what it means to be a modern female leader because you seem to be able to bring together your femininity you know you always look beautiful and you don't impose yourself physically on situations but also you have this power have you always consciously tried to stay true to yourself and your gender or is it something that you've evolved over time well actually I felt at the early stages of my career that I didn't really have the license to be completely authentic. I felt, and this is a long time ago, I've been working in the city, which is obviously still very male dominated for 30 years now. And in the first decade, I mean, I think it was quite a hostile environment for women generally, but the way the women sort of coped, that's probably the best word with that, was to, I mean, there were all these sharp-shouldered sort of power suits and we were almost honorary men, really. And 
I certainly, I mean, I'm always slightly embarrassed to admit it, but I bought a suit for my first interview. And when I got the job, I didn't wear it again. <laughs> so, so I was slightly rebellious sure, on that sorry, sense, but I'm sure it's, um, but I still felt there was a sort of narrow confines around how far I could stray from this conventional image, certainly. And at the time, I mean, it was the time of Wall Street, the first movie coming out and sort of greed is good. And then the working girl and, you know, Sigourney Weaver sort of... Because you call it a hostile environment. I can't well, I didn't know it was hostile oh, okay. at the time. That was the thing. I mean, I fell into the city because when I joined Newton Investment Management, I was effectively mentored by Stuart Newton, the founder. You know, really, it was an accident, really, because although he was always involved with hiring any kind of new investment person, my boss resigned soon after I joined and he stepped in to sort of, I suppose, stand over my shoulder a little bit and help when I was still quite, you know, novice. But effectively, that meant that he mentored me and he'd constructed this whole investment approach around the idea that everyone's different perspectives were really important, that actually you get closer to the truth and the right answer, which is hugely ahead of its time. I mean, I don't think anyone even used the word diversity and certainly not inclusion in the fund management industry, certainly at that time. So it was a big lesson in terms of not being sort of an add-on. It was absolutely core to the whole approach. But also, of course, he wanted me to be absolutely as I was. And as I got more confident about that, particularly when, you know, I'd go off on maternity leave again and he would reassure my male colleagues, you know, loudly so I could hear, oh, don't worry, she comes back better each time, you know, which imagine how that made me feel. I don't think it was strictly true, if I'm really honest. As a new mother, you're always a bit fragile and, well, I was certainly in terms of emotionally, physically, it's all a bit of a upheaval. But uh, anyway, it was very generous of him and he always made me feel that actually the authentic version of myself was the better one in terms of actually how I would perform. And that was a huge breakthrough because, of course, then it became a virtuous circle that the more authentic I was, the more I was able to perform. And then the more people would ask me to represent the firm or nominate me for awards. I felt I had the courage then to take big positions that ended up being career-defining investment decisions. If I hadn't had that mentoring, really, I could have easily just been too cautious and not taking the risks. I think for women, it's also a lot about knowledge mm. and network. I obviously worked in the same industry that you work yeah. in now, and I left when I had children because I couldn't make it work. And completely honestly, I didn't actually know where else I could even apply. And mm. I didn't have anyone to ask, so I yeah. left. And I think it's hugely exciting to see that women now have more access to that knowledge, because when you're in an industry which is all male. The last person we interviewed for the podcast was Farah Store, who's the editor of Cosmopolitan, who's mm. in a very female mm. world. It's a completely different But thing. interestingly, she also went through a transition from being quite a shy child to feeling like she had to be inauthentically ballsy mm. to then yeah, arriving yeah. somewhere where she is now, where she's able to kind of blend everything mm. that she's been or is and is much more mm. authentic. And we just want ultimately people to be able to be human beings and not to yeah. kind of be in any way feeling that there's a kind of identity issue. I have to confess, really, that I've had a personal experience of this recently, that my son-in-law is Ghanaian in heritage, and I had become conscious, and we talked about it together, you know, that we go into environments, certainly sort of family situations, where he would be the only black person, and also he's very striking, you know, six foot four, and, you know, very big physical presence. Yeah, extremely handsome. So, yeah, so it's kind of like, you know, whoa. And nothing could really prepare me for the contrast between certainly how I felt about the situation when he was the only black person of certain family gatherings to at their wedding when 
was sort of 50-50 and all sorts of colours in between. You just completely didn't register anybody's colour. or mm. And that's what I think workplaces struggle with. It's still, oh, we'll have two women on the shortlist. Yeah. We must have one ethnic minority and we must have one person who's gay. You know, and it still feels very contrived in some ways and getting to that point where actually everyone feels comfortable about and just laughing and having fun and working hard and enjoying you know work becomes just somewhere where you look forward to going to and you're not feeling like any question about your identity I and mean, we're a long way yeah. off that I'm afraid. Is that how you feel about work? Do you just get really excited each morning to go into work? Well I'm a human being and obviously I mean sometimes I feel tired and you know, this week is currently a Friday and I've had, you know, the usual long week and there was a big event in Manchester the night before last, which I was semi-hosting as this diversity charities that I've been involved in, which is replacing money that was foregone by the charities lost from the President's Club dinner. Anyway, we had an event at Manchester. It was a fabulous event, but, you know, that takes its toll on the family. I'm away. And then last night we had the mentoring scheme launch, which I slipped away from early so that I could get home in time to spend some of the evening with my family. So I have my limitations, that's for sure. But I do love what I'm doing. And actually, I was thinking about the other day that my team, which is not the hugest team, I've been building the team since I joined about a year and a half ago, is accidentally very diverse. So we're about 50-50 men and women. We have three different kind of overt religious dimensions. We have one black person. We have uh, age from mid-20s to mid-60s very different socioeconomic experiences, backgrounds, where we've worked before and so forth. But actually, I hadn't set it up, oh, we must mm. sort of socially engineer it that way. Some people had applied to join my team from within the company. Others we hired externally. A couple were here already. It is funny because I don't think anyone's thinking, oh, that's the very young person or that's the very old person or, you know, that's the black person, that's the white. But, I mean, it's but it is a small group, you know, and it's maybe easier to do when you're literally looking for different perspectives. I've taken obviously a leaf out of what I learned from Stuart Newton about, you know, making sure we haven't just got this idea that we know what people want. And so we want to have young people there who are using technology differently than oldies like me and that kind of thing. Yes, even <laughs> yeah. our, our assistants way more technically evolved than you. <laughs> what about mistakes in your career? Failure is a huge buzzword or concept at the moment. We're advocates of opening yourself up to failure, not fearing it and learning from it. Mm. Do you agree? And have there been defining failures in your career? Totally. To be honest, it always bothers me when people say, oh, a very successful woman. Well, actually, I know that every day would have, you know, moments of triumph and disaster. And actually, it's really important to follow the guidance of treating those two imposters just the same. Because I think I've quoted Winston Churchill, although someone who's a Churchillian historian told me that actually hadn't said, you know, that failure is not final, whatever, it's how you deal with it that counts. But I think it's the most important thing. And I have had lots of failures. In fact, the most important failure in my life was actually, but I can't think of any success as not being sort of sorted out as a failure, really. But when I was at school and I was the only girl in the maths class and I was massively failing, very unconfident in myself and I mean today people would say I was bullied I looked upon it at times being teased mercilessly but it was pretty hard going I was again the only girl in the class and I had two male maths teachers and I kind of pulled myself through that by working out how I could conquer the demon that was my further maths A level and to do so without quitting and actually along the way the failures the kind of red ink over my <laughs> papers the laughing when I got everything wrong I mean I can just already it makes me sort of shiver slightly the crimson sort of face you know and trying not to cry in front of all these boys and so forth I mean it was a nightmare but actually that was such a big important lesson in resilience for me 
I've already told you about the first failure in terms of not getting the promotion. And then, of course, along the way, I mean, I particularly had a terrible year as a fund manager in 1999. It's indelibly inked on my brain. And I made all the mistakes. I had left, had gone on maternity leave with my fourth child, the one that my husband then was at home looking after as his first foray into stay-at-home dad ship or hood. And I had a Bloomberg terminal, I insist on this, in my bedroom. I mean, what a disaster that was. My baby was born a month early. No one ever knew why. And, you know, she was an incredible shrinking baby for the first sort of month of her life, getting smaller and smaller. I was physical mess. I had hemorrhaged after she was born. I mean, the whole thing, physically, I was a disaster. And emotionally, I was very much struggling. I was addicted to this screen that was showing me every day how awful my performance was and how I was going to return to probably no job at all. So in the end, after about six or seven weeks of this, my husband said, you know, I think it would help if you went back to work because you will feel more in control of things. And I did. But of course, then I wasn't physically ready. And so that year was just, you know, and I had another child who was just a year old, you know, at the time. I mean, it was really a very big challenge. But within only two years after that, I'd become the CEO of Newton. I mean, it was a complete, so again, if there's, if there's any point of sharing the story, it's because, well, again, I could not quit because we'd already taken this decision. Richard had left his job. I was the breadwinner. We had four children. I didn't want to quit because I wanted to see my way through it. What I had to do was be incredibly one day at a time about it. I had to somehow get the mental strength, which I did not for several weeks of trying, to not be in that kind of panic mode where you are dreading going into work. And I went back and the first thing was loads of people, clients wanting meetings with me about my terrible performance. It was the opposite of all your Christmases at once. But actually from surviving that, I mean, all I was doing was surviving. I was not thriving. But then of course, again, you kind of rebuild your own sense of strength and self-worth. I mean, the clients didn't leave. What was wonderful is they said, well, we knew how you were positioned and the performance has been exactly as you had told us. So it would be if this scenario came about. And I had a few young colleagues as well who were very, very supportive and would be not crutches, but so much as kind of sounding boards about what we were going to do as our next positioning, but almost had to look at myself from a distance and judge the situation for what it was. And remember that I was always advising people, you know, who were younger and less experienced than me about, you know, the tough times that every single active fund manager goes through, whether they're, you know, Warren Buffett mm-hmm. or someone just starting out. Coming out of that is absolutely essential to learn. And, you know, again, Stuart, incredibly supportive, not, you know, saying, well, actually, you were rubbish all along. He was completely helping me to get out of that as well. So there's no magic formula, but kind of every day going in and recognising that, this is probably a phase. <laughs> yeah, I think thinking of every success connected to a failure is also liberating mm. and probably empowering for lots of people as well. I actually think, you know, certainly we'll say, obviously not objectively, but truthfully, that I think my children are really great. And obviously that's not because me and Richard, because I certainly believe after having so many that nature gets you a long way rather than nurture. But it's wonderful to see. And actually, but along the way, obviously, we've had our fair share of problems, issues, senses of failing as parents. It's part of the human condition. It is. One of our favourite parts of the book was the bit at the end when you talk about the questions that you get asked, your FAQs (laughs) chapter. There's a question about failure in there, which is what made me think of it. But you talk in that chapter about how most of the questions you get asked have a negative skew. 
So they're, okay, how am I going to cope? How am I going to be okay? But there's a question that nobody ever asks you, which is, how am I going to become the next CEO? Yeah. So for all the women listening yeah. to the podcast, <laughs> and for us with our burgeoning business, how do we become the next CEO and do it in a, I think, gracious and happy way yes, as you yeah. have? The first thing I'd say is a lot of the advice that people are given is often intrinsically linked to almost like fueling our self-doubts. I think it's all about, you know, not being this and not being that. It's about, I mean, even the one presents oneself, there's a lot of advice on, you know, how to dress for success and how to not be too fashiony, too frumpy, too thin, too fat, too old, too young, too assertive, and how you speak, too shy, too introvert, too extrovert, etc. That's exhausting. I think being clear-sighted about what you want to achieve is the single most important thing. And I mean, certainly the 30% club, we had no concept at the start about how we were going to achieve 30%. But all I could see was the goal. And I also knew that we were very genuine, that the people who were supportive, and it wasn't by any stretch of imagination, a consensus view that this was a good thing. This was still received in a negative way by lots of people at the time we launched. But I think being open to that vagueness that you might feel as you've got your goal, whether it's your business goal or your ambitions for the company, what you personally want to do in terms of whether you want to be the CEO, but being very clear about what your personal definition of your success is. I have lots of mentees and the first thing we do is sit down and say, what version of yourself in three or five years, depending on how far they can think ahead or stage of life, would make you feel happiest if you think about it now. And it's a very interesting exercise and it's not static, of course, you have to keep revisiting that. But I think knowing whether it is being the CEO or writing a book or being a wonderful mother or all combination of all those three or something completely different is a very important answer. And write it down. So actually, there's nothing like a discipline of writing it down. to, Because otherwise, it's easy to talk and be vague. And actually, each time I've done that with mentees, it's a complete surprise to them. I say, you take it away. You don't do it like first thing that you think you should say, but actually, when no one's looking. And then be a little single-minded about it working backwards from there because obviously things don't happen by accident if you really want to be the ceo then actually you'll have to get on the bench if you're employed rather than it's your own business you have to think about well what would it take to be perceived as that leadership material and what do i need to do to get in front of people so that i have exposure now that sounds a bit contrived and you don't want to show off and you might not want to sort of put your hand up you things, but you absolutely have to self-promote and One of the things I've noticed is that a lot of women are very, very nervous about that or reticent because they feel it's, well, it's certainly not being authentic. But actually, a lot of the time, I mean, I just had a situation recently, one of my colleagues has been asked to work on a very specific project for the company that takes her off my desk for a couple of months. And it's a very prestigious project and it's very important and it's wonderful for her. But I want her to get recognition from this in whatever form that's going to take. So in agreeing to it, I said to the person who's orchestrating, I said, is she going to get to do the actual presentation to the board? Is she going to do all the work and somebody else is going to sort of present it? And he said, no, 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 no. And then I made sure that she, who's a bit nervous about these things, actually, she told me that he had told her this. And actually, she said, I would never have asked. And I said, but, you know... In fact, I have been a mentor for us. He said, that was rule number one, you know. So, so we laughed about that a little bit. But it's really important. You know, she doesn't have to shout off the rooftops. She just needs to take the credit where it's due. Mm-hmm. So a little bit more selfishness is sometimes in good to order, I think. Definitely. <laughs> so coming to the end of the podcast, being so wise, I think, what mm-hmm. one piece of advice would you give women who are listening about finding their success and pursuing it? 
Oh, that's a big question for every woman. I do think it's coming back to this thing of a personal definition of success, first of all. So I think companies often rush into diversity initiatives without asking people what they're really experiencing. And I think a lot of us, we march off down this path, but it's really somebody else's path and it's not our own. And it's worth spending quite a bit of time, I think, at any stage in your life. And I've certainly benefited from that punctuation points and keep making sure I have the time to step back and think, actually, what do I want to do next? How do I feel about the present? What are my goals? I hope not in a way that comes across as too sort of clinical, but those goals can be, you know, I've got this grandson, you know, I want to spend more time with him. He's nine months old. They theoretically live in California, but actually in the last four months have been pretty much living with us, which is wonderful. And so that's been, you know, really exciting and it's nothing more fun than spending time with him. But so it's really important to keep coming back to your own definition of success before you take the steps to achieve it. The only other thing, if I'm allowed two things, is to have allies, mentors, friends. Don't think it's a sign of strength to do everything by yourself. I know I need lots of support, advice, help. I get stuck. I'll turn to different people and sometimes I will try to sort it out myself and then sometimes think, oh, didn't take my own advice there. So recognize that none of us have all the answers. Very wise words. Well, thank you so much, Helena. It's been a pleasure. If you enjoyed the podcast and it sparked some thoughts about your success, please don't forget to leave us a review wherever you're listening. And Helena's book, which we refer to throughout the episode, is A Good Time to Be a Girl and is out now. Again, all the information is in the show notes. Don't forget to head to stepupclub.co to find out more about how Step Up School could help you achieve your career dreams. See you next week, same time, same place. We've got plenty of incredible women, each with her own definition of success up our sleeves.